0: the scores nba podcast my name is joseph macharo and i am joined by my fellow pawn oh sorry i mean uh co-host sorry i was just <laughs> just reading Kyrie irving's uh intrepid <laughs> writing and uh just crossing me up there a little bit sorry co-host not pawn Joe fun
1: listen man i embrace my pawnhood. I, i'm you know fine just going through this life as an insignificant piece in a larger game what it is, man.
0: Kyrie Irving and the Nets have uh, both been fined $25,000 for Kyrie's media boycott, refusing to speak to the media during media week. Uh, seems like he's going to continue this, if not all season, at least for the foreseeable future. And he put out another statement, I guess you'd call it today, in which he said he will not talk to pawns. We talked about it during, you know, the shutdown and the restart. I think you should be able to laud Kyrie Irving for the tremendous things he's done off the court as a humanitarian. But I think you can do those things without also being completely blinded when he's a fool. Like when he's a fool, you should be able to say he's a fool. He's being a clown.
1: What's the big deal? Like, is it for the sake of discussion? Okay. His
0: being um, upset, for example, by what we all assume is the thing that set him off, right? We don't know because he won't tell anyone, but, what we assume the thing that set him off is Adrian Wojnarowski calling him a disruptor when seemingly all Kyrie was trying to do was start a very reasonable dialogue about whether players should have been going to the bubble at all, whether it was going to distract from social justice issues. And so if he's upset about that, that is completely fair. That is a reasonable reaction. But to take that or to take what like, that is a very rare Occurrence. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be upset about it. He could be. I don't know. Boycott Woj, if you want. Boycott ESP, like whatever, however you feel you need to go about your business that way, fine. But like this notion that the media has always taken his words and twisted them is completely foolish. Most of the times that it, Kyrie has ended up having to like deny or defend himself against something, here's what usually happens with Kyrie either he says something ridiculous. And then when people call him out about it, he ends up trying to galaxy brain, you know, explain why there's actually this deeper meaning to it. You know, I'll go back to, yeah, people, people say, stop bringing up the fact that he said the world is flat. No, I won't. Because that was one of the dumbest things I've ever heard an NBA player say. So that was like an example of, he says something ridiculous. People call him out for it. And In the end, he tries to spin it like, no, no, no. Like, here's why. Here's what I really meant. There was like this deeper meaning about, you know, seeking knowledge and whatever. Instead, like, so he says ridiculous things. The media calls him out for it. And then he thinks that's some version of them twisting his words. He says cryptic things, you know, about teammates or the locker room or chemistry, whatever. The media talks about it. And then he claims his words are being twisted. Again, the Woj thing is he has every right to be upset about that and and what happened. This summer, but to take that and go in this direction where, oh yeah, like every time I speak, my words are twisted and therefore I'm not going to talk to pawns and I refuse to speak to the media. It's just like, dude, get
1: over yourself. There's the condescension of like, of calling media pawns or whatever he was referring to with that statement. I I obviously don't get behind that. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with anything that you said, but I do think like... There is something of a no-win situation there because when athletes give these like stock boilerplate answers where they say a lot without really saying anything at all, we like chide them for being boring and uninteresting. If they come out and say some of the stuff that like Kyrie has said to the media in the past that has, you know, dominated a news cycle because he's indiscreetly throwing a teammate under the bus or trying to galaxy brain his way around his awkward attempts at public leadership, then he gets pilloried for that as well. And then when he decides like the whole exercise just isn't really worth it, then it's, you know, you have all these kind of NBA media members up in arms about how he is, you know, breaching this social contract. And that's a danger to the very profitability of the sport. Like that's something I've seen people saying it's like, you know, the media helps sell the game to fans and Kyrie and refusing to talk to the media is making that more difficult. But I can at least empathize with the fact that for him, it seems like he can't really win. And it's complicated, right? Like with the Woj thing, we've talked about this before. Woj didn't come up with the word disruptor, right? Like that is something that somebody fed to Woj for one reason or another. It's the same, like you go back to that Jackie McMullen piece, right? That got published before last season started in which she reported on Kyrie and KD not really buying into some of the strength and conditioning workouts that the Nets were doing in training camp, not being fully on board with the player development aspects of their program. Yeah,
0: Kyrie not wanting to take his hat off for that team. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Stuff like that. And again, that's something that, like that's information that she got from somewhere, but you know, as a reporter, you make choices, right. And it's You don't just report everything that you hear. I mean, Woj using the word disruptor, whether it was fed to him or not, was a choice. There, there's a sort of duality there. It's not just as kind of black and white as, you know, it's for whatever reason, somebody or somebodies have a certain agenda where they want to leak this stuff about Kyrie to the media because they have a vested interest in making him look bad and b like in a lot of cases like the media has run with that stuff because they don't seem to have an issue portraying him in a particular way and
0: but but that's what i'm saying you really believe you really believe that no no just
1: just okay but let me finish so i'm not saying that's like objectively bad because that is the job of an nba reporter is to report stuff like that that they feel would be of interest to the nba watching public like i'm sure that story about the nets did huge numbers. Like that was probably intensely fascinating to a lot of NBA fans. And I totally understand why it was totally fascinating to me too. Like just exploring the kind of central tension between bringing in superstars to a program that's been geared toward player development. But I also think it's fair for Kyrie to be upset about the fact that like that stuff has gotten way more coverage in the NBA media than the stuff that you mentioned, you know, like the humanitarian work that he's done, the fact that he stood with the Sioux at Standing Rock when they were protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, the fact that he donated a million and a half dollars to a relief fund for WNBA players who were losing wages because they didn't want to go and play in the bubble. That stuff just hasn't really been covered to the same extent. And I think the imbalance is something that it's fair for him to point out. I don't necessarily think that he's going about it in the right way, but I think this is stuff that's worth talking about.
0: But this was what I was getting at, is that his issues with the media seem to be mostly stemming from times that other people around him, whether it be teammates or whoever, have leaked things to the media or have relayed things to the media from discussions or interactions with Kyrie. So my reaction to all that is, how does then you, like, the only times... The media has really like gone at you for things you've said or when you've said them. When you've said ridiculous things, they've called you out. But these like stories that are out there that you seem to have a problem with, they're not from you talking to the media and your words being twisted. They're from people around you talking to the media. So if anything, be upset with the leaks in your shit. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like this notion that he was boycotting the media because they consistently take his words and twist them is BS. It's complete BS yeah i mean that's
1: th- th- that's that's fine that, I, that's that's fair
0: and, and so this like t- to now go where he's going now where it's like you know the I, I won't talk to pawns like this is what i'm saying it's you you should be able to laud a guy for the good things he's done and understand where he's coming from with his gripes but it, like this blind devotion that's now developed with fans and Kyrie, where it's like everything he says must like, yeah, there's like some, there really is some like galaxy brain thing too. Like, and also I'll add man, and we've said it before in, with other players, right? We've talked about usually where there's smoke, there's fire just from like a basketball perspective, a teammate perspective, a locker room perspective. We've said that about other players that where there's smoke, there's fire. We have to say it about Kyrie too. At some point, I don't think NBA players and media just got together and decided, like, you know what? Let's bring this guy down. Let's take him down a peg. Let's let's make sure people think he's this, like, locker room cancer. You know what I mean? Like, at some point...
1: You know, no, no, no. I, I agree. But, okay, so let's say he just did the thing where he perfunctorily fulfilled his media obligations, but basically did the, I'm just here so I don't get fined shtick or both teams played hard. God bless and good night. <laughs> is that doing anything for anybody? Like it, it, like this is what I mean. So it it basically it's gotten to a point where and I don't necessarily think there's any intentionality behind this, but the fact is in this media ecosystem, you know, the content industrial complex makes it so that Kyrie saying controversial things that are going to drive a media cycle because they make him seem foolish in some way or another, whether they are his words or not, like that is better for NBA media than him just coming out and saying nothing. Like that is ultimately what NBA media, broadly speaking, like I don't want to group everybody together into this kind of like amorphous entity, but like that is good for NBA media is like, Kyrie participating in the whole thing and doing his part. And in a lot of cases, doing his part has meant saying things that ruffle a few feathers. And so I don't know, like if like, what does the value add there? If he was just decided, I'm just going to like go through the motions. I'm not really going to say anything at that point. Like, I just don't really care if he decides that he doesn't want to talk to the media. I I also am like sympathetic to a lot of the like very hardworking and very talented NBA reporters who are just trying to do their jobs and would presumably like to talk to Kyrie because they think he has interesting things to say about the game, like about things happening on the court or off the court. Uh, And so I can understand their frustration being like, look, I just want to like talk to you and like help tell your story and like help me help you kind of thing. But I don't know. I guess I can just see it from both sides. And I I think it's just important to note, like we... (sighs) There's a certain power and a certain responsibility, I think, that the people who spend time with these athletes and actually have access to them have in the way that they portray them uh, and the way that they convey their messages or just who they are, I guess, to the general public. And we have like or at least in the past have some access to these players, you know, not the same like to, to the same extent that people who are super plugged in have, but like we've spent time in locker rooms, we've talked to these guys. And I think it can just get a little bit dangerous because we'll form certain perceptions about these players based on our own interactions with them. And that's not really fair because fair. because some players might be perfectly pleasant with the media and they might be terrible human beings. And some people might be great human beings but might just like have an aversion to talking to the media or saying anything interesting could or be being particularly friendly could be having a bad day. Like could have had a bad experience in the past. Could be shy. Like whatever it happens to be, I think it's just something that we have to be careful with. And, and so for a, a reporter to portray Kyrie a certain way, because they don't like how he deals with the media, I think would be wrongheaded. And like, as an example, I last season had a chance to talk to Terrence Davis on the Raptors and had like a perfectly pleasant interaction with them. Enjoyed talking to him. He was open and friendly, made me feel good about doing my job, made my job easier because he was like willing to talk about the stuff that I wanted to talk to him about. And I walked away from that interaction thinking, wow, like what a nice guy. Like what a pleasant interaction that was. Love Terrence Davis. And Guess what? Like the guy is now like facing trial for domestic assault. Like this is this is kind of what I mean, right? And I think it's just important for us to be cognizant of that and and try to not, you know, let those impressions, you know, that we glean from the interactions that we have with these people inform our opinions of who they actually are as human beings because people are multifaceted and there's a lot more to them than just like how they interact with the media on a daily basis well
0: <clears> 100 <throat> i'm with you on that and uh, again i like i've said it many 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 times and i think Kyrie is a good dude at heart who has, again like i'll say it for the hundredth time that has done tremendous things off the court that he should be lauded for and people should want to tell those stories i know i would but all i'm saying is that him doing those things and the fact that he has like maybe specific gripes with one or two people in the media who have maybe twisted his words but like i said for the most part it's been people reporting what he's actually said and very clearly reading into them or people reporting based on people around Kyrie leaking to them to me that just doesn't give him it doesn't mean that people should blindly defend him when he also becomes kind of a jerk and and and, and that's what i'm saying like i just think people should be able to say like you know what Kyrie's a good dude. He's done good things, but he's being kind of a jerk right now. Like there's nothing wrong with saying that. And then that's just kind of my point that there just seems to be this now, this newfound like blind devotion to Kyrie where you can't, you can't even point out when he is being a clown or a jerk because it's like, well, like you not see all the stuff he's done. And like, he's so misunderstood. It's like, no, it's possible to be, you know, a good person who does good things and still act like a clown and a jerk sometimes, but it's also okay to be called out when you do those things.
1: Yeah, I I 100% agree, and I do think Kyrie's kind of being a jerk in this instance. I think the reason that there is, in a lot of cases, maybe in some cases it is just blind devotion, but from where I sit, I think the reason that there is a lot of this knee-jerk defensiveness of Kyrie when stuff like this happens is because, you know, at the same time there is this kind of slavish uh, treatment Of players like, say, Derrick Rose. 100%, yeah. And, you know, he is treated with kid gloves and, like, his story is pitched as this, like, redemptive arc where he's had to overcome so much. And, like, don't get me wrong, like, Derrick Rose has had to overcome a whole lot in his life. But overcoming a rape charge in which he fully admitted to not understanding what consent was is not one of those things. And the fact that that has been essentially swept under the rug, I can understand that being frustrating for people who have to turn around and see like Kyrie getting pilloried because he says maybe some slightly disingenuous stuff that people in the NBA media take umbrage with because it threatens their livelihoods. So so that's, that's I think, where a lot of that defensiveness comes from.
0: Drooling over Derrick Rose and quote unquote redemptive arcs like that is flat out embarrassing and and disgusting to be honest the one thing i would add there and i'm not defending it by any means but i would say that if that is one of the gripes which i'm sure it is uh, whether it's among fans or among Kyrie himself then i would also say look to the players as well because the level of um love and adulation that players have for derrick rose is equally embarrassing and disgusting as any sort of media love like you talk to players i believe it was even steve kerr saying it just last month when clay thompson got hurt and about how many people around the league were upset about it that if there was like two guys in the league that everyone wants good things for it's like derrick rose and clay thompson I'm one of the, these
1: things is not like the exactly
0: other. so i'm with you in that a guy like Kyrie should not be getting pillar the way he does sometimes <clears throat> in comparison to a guy like derrick rose but i would also say that is far from just a media issue because look within the league at the way players themselves view someone like jerry rose and the way players themselves talk about Kyrie irving
1: all fair points well this is what's so funny about it too and this this should probably be the last point that we make about this but even Kyrie irving saying he's not going to talk to the media anymore somehow dominates the nba media cycle we're here on an nba podcast and we just spent 20 minutes talking about it so I just think that's interesting.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll say I'll say one more thing for real and then I really will be done. Would anyone have a problem if Kyrie really just came out and instead of doing what he's doing now, like you mentioned how, you know, if he was like the boring type or just came out and said, I'm just here so I don't get fined, he would get criticized anyway. But like, what if he just came out and was honest and was like, hey, this specific thing pissed me off. I had genuine concerns about the social emptiness maybe of what we were doing when there was like bigger problems to deal with in the world uh i had concerns about this i had and i was labeled a disruptor that pissed me off i don't like the way i was like you know what i mean it's not like i'm sitting here saying like oh yeah he should just accept that sometimes like he gets treated no i'm just saying like what what about honestly just coming out and being honest like spill your guts tell us who, who are you mad at like what specifically are you mad about how did i'm assuming that pissed you off fair enough him putting a wall up around himself doesn't do him any favors in trying to convey that message and also just that yeah like maybe not every media member there is a pawn maybe there are people there that actually would want to tell your real story and hear how you feel about this stuff
1: you know i think that's actually a great point and what it's made me realize is that Probably the biggest issue in all this is that Kyrie is a really bad communicator.
0: But if you say that, you end up like, again, with the, the people that are like blindly devoted to him saying, well, it's like more of an issue on our end of like, he's misunderstood. It's like, oh, he's a terrible communicator. It's okay. We can admit that. Yeah. All right. Enough about Kyrie and the pawns. Do you have any thoughts on Paul George signing that uh, max extension? Because a lot of people had a lot of thoughts. On yeah.
1: I, I don't think it's all that complicated, man. I mean, I, it's great for Paul George. Uh, especially, you know, coming off such a disappointing end to his first season in LA, like for him to be able to lock in that kind of long-term security is obviously a win for him. And I think it was absolutely what the Clippers had to do. And, you know, if we turn around five years down the road and this has all played out disastrously and you want to say like, they made the wrong all-in gamble on the wrong guy, then fine, but this is the gamble they made. They gave up five first-round picks, two first-round pick swaps, Shay Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, to get Paul George. Because, you know, that's... It doesn't seem like it was Kawhi's first choice, but it was among his top choices of guys that he wanted to play with. They decided they needed to make that happen. And I think preventing him from getting to free agency two years after giving all of that up to get him was undeniably the right thing for them to do. And to give him a max, like if you want to say that he's not worth it, then I don't know what to tell you. Like the NBA marketplace would dictate otherwise, because if he had gotten to unrestricted free agency and the Clippers weren't willing to give him a max, some other team was going to without a doubt. Yeah, He would have had so, to have
0: an absolutely unbelievably abysmal season this year for him to fall off max territory.
1: Right. So yeah, to me, it's just kind of a no-brainer for them. I think he got a player option on the last year, and maybe that's the one thing that you could quibble with, be like, why did you need to give him that player option in the last year? Which I think he was going to be going into his age 35 season and be slated to make like $49 million. So I think you can be pretty well assured that he was going to pick up that option. Uh, so if it was fully locked in, I don't think ultimately it would have made much of a difference anyway, but it's just, I guess if Paul George is still an elite player, then that will allow him to opt out one year earlier than he otherwise would have like making that a player option rather than just like a, either a fully guaranteed year or a team option is possibly the one thing that you could point to and say that that was a mistake, but I think this is what they had to do. And I don't really don't think it's too complicated.
0: Yeah, I think it's very easy to clown on Paul George because of the year he had and the whole playoff P thing, the pandemic P thing, uh, him going at Dame. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, the way he fell apart, but not single, not on his own, in, in down the stretch against Denver. But I think a lot of times when fans or even media like fall into the trap of clowning a guy like that because of his his lowest on court moments or because you know of a soundbite that allowed us to laugh at quote unquote, playoff P what gets lost in there. A lot of times is the guy's on court value is still immense. And, um, you know, you can say what you want about Paul George in the playoffs. The fact is, first of all, you got to get to the playoffs in the NBA and, um, it's a long season and Paul George has proven for like, what, like almost the better part of a decade now, what, like seven, eight years other than the year he was recovering from a catastrophic leg injury that, you can basically count on him to be what? Like at worst, what are we talking? Top 20 player and at best like a top eight player, you know, on a good day over the course of a season. Probably like the perfect number two on a on a championship type team. Like you said, he, he was going to get a max contract on the open market and no amount of Twitter clowning was going to change that. So given what the Clippers gave up for him, and and what his on-court value still is, despite the jokes. Like, it, it, this was kind of a no-brainer to me. And um, the fact that it's easy to laugh at the Clippers doesn't change that.
1: Yeah, and this isn't like a sunk cost fallacy thing where, you know, with the Sixers when they had given up a bunch to get Tobias Harris, so they had to max out Tobias Harris. Like, Paul George is really, really good. Even last year, he was easily a top-20 player, in my opinion, when he was healthy it, it, the availability was a bit of an issue. He only played 48 games in the regular season, played less than 30 minutes a game, but the production was absolutely still there. I mean, coming off of double shoulder surgery, I do think that affected his defense, but he still shot 41% from three on more than eight attempts per game, averaged uh, 26, seven, five, and two per 36 minutes. And the Clippers outscored opponents by 13.2 points per hundred when he and Kawhi were on the floor at the same time. So yeah, the playoffs, his performance in the bubble left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, but he was really good during the regular season. And I think coming into next year, given how last season finished for him and given that he's now signed this max extension, I think he probably has more to prove this coming season than any other player in the league. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Got any thoughts on James Harden's
0: reportedly growing trade destination list? I laughed at him We haven't really
1: talked about the Harden thing. Honestly, like, it's not even, like, the holdout didn't really bother me that much. I think the thing that gets underplayed when a star makes these kind of trade demands or at least informs a team that he's not going to resign, so you better trade me now, is... These situations ultimately resolve themselves when there is a mutually beneficial solution. And in a lot of cases, it does wind up benefiting the team. As much as they might like to keep their star, if that star is not interested in sticking around beyond their contract, then, hey, like, try and extract some value in return. And you look at the recent history of this, right? Like, the Pacers flipped one year of Paul George. Into multiple years of DeMontis Sabonis and Victor Oladipo. Like the Thunder flipped two years of Paul George into a gazillion draft picks and Shea Gilgis Alexander. Like the Pelicans flipped one year of Anthony Davis into many years of Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball and Jackson Hayes and multiple future picks. Like it's, it sucks, obviously, for a team that has a player under contract and expects that player to honor that contract and play it through the end to have to be told like I don't want to play here anymore please trade me but I think it's worth pointing out that those situations can ultimately prove beneficial for those teams and like I think if you ask the Pacers fan or a Thunder fan or a Pelicans fan you know which would you rather have like that one extra year of Paul George or all the future assets that you now have they would probably say yeah you know what this situation I've actually like worked out pretty well for our team and that's what bugs me a bit when people are like well you know these contracts don't mean anything like a player can sign for 5 years but after 3 years we'll just ask ask out but right still team control though you still have you still like have the you know that player under contract which is what gives that player value which is yeah. what allows you to like improve your outlook in the long term so i think that part of it is a little silly obviously the way that Harden went about it you know um Partying in Atlanta and Las Vegas without a mask on in the middle of a pandemic—that's
0: the only part that actually pissed me off, to be honest. Like, like the maskless partying in Vegas, that absolutely, was clown, clown that hand. was disgraceful. Yeah,
1: and throwing dollar bills around—clearly a shot intended directly at Tillman for Tito, just rubbing <laughs> it in the broke boy's face. <laughs> Unacceptable. No, but but on a serious note, and and I I just we don't have to delve too far into this, but I just want to say because we've been. You know, doing some season preview stuff, talking about NBA, like how it's going to look on court, like talking about this as if there's going to be a normal season. And it's easy to forget as we talk about all the kind of on-court minutiae and how excited we are to see how these new-look teams perform. Like, man... this pandemic is raging and it's worse than it's ever been. And people are dying. And Carl Anthony towns has like lost his mom and his uncle and five other relatives. And like, I I cannot express how much I feel for that dude and just like hope he's doing somewhat okay right now. And, and that's, that's the part of this that just is like really pissed me off. Like in the midst of all that, To see James Harden behaving that way was really disappointing, Um, you know, to say nothing of the fact that apparently he like lobbied for the Rockets to go and get John Wall. And then like, this is what he's doing while John Wall is like reporting to Rockets training camp, just a bad look all around I think but as far as the trade situation yeah like him adding Milwaukee to his list of teams like the bucks don't have anything to trade for him I also don't uh,
0: believe that he actually wants to go there I don't like I don't know what how it benefits the Harden side at all to add a team that can't trade but like yeah Harden and his agent aka his mom literally look it up have to know that like the bucks don't have enough to entice the Rockets and he wouldn't actually go there. Plus him and Giannis like pretty clearly don't seem to like each other. I don't know. I I just don't actually believe that Milwaukee was ever a realistic option. In terms of the trade demands in general, look, I completely understand why he feels he needs to get a bit nuts and a little chaotic to force his way out, right? Because of the multiple years left on his contract, he just doesn't have the leverage most disgruntled superstars usually would when they're trying to force their way out. And so he really needs to kind of like force the Rockets' hands force the issue, almost create leverage by chaos. And so, you know, him not reporting to camp on time and, um, you know, maybe trying to make it as uncomfortable and untenable as possible for the Rockets to keep him there. That all makes sense. I'm not going to fault him for that. Like, I'm very pro player empowerment. If he, if that's how he feels, he's going to get where he wants to get to or just get out of Houston, all the power to, him. like you, the only thing that pissed me off was the maskless partying and just the clear lack of regard for people even in like you know how he kind of like poked fun at it on social media on instagram with the you know that emoji he put up in his stories where that i think i know it rubbed me the wrong way it clearly rubbed you the wrong way i think that will have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and he's not gonna gain any fans from doing that but i mean i can i can pretty confidently say like james harden doesn't give a crap about what we, th- you know, I'm serious. Like, he, this dude marches to the beat of his own drum. And if, if, if I, I think he really sees it as like, if that lost him some favor in the court of public opinion, but also helped push him out of Houston, I think he will take that trade any day of the week. And then at the end of the day, there's also just like the fact that as chaotic as this might get and as ridiculous as this might seem, no one should be fooled into thinking James Harden isn't worth the trouble because uh, he's still James Harden. He is still one of the greatest offensive players we've ever seen. He is an offense, an elite offense unto himself. He is almost a walking 50 win season in like second round playoff appearance. And any team that trades for him sees its championship profile boosted and the Rockets in trading him are just going to have to hope like someone or something they acquire is half as good years from now as James Harden is today. Like, those are just the facts. And so, you know, we can clown him all we want for the way he's going about it, but it's a superstar's league, and it always will be, and he is a superstar of almost the highest order.
1: I don't see the situation getting resolved before the season starts. I think that he is going to begin the season with the Rockets. I I think one of the big questions right now is, like, how is he going to go about it? Is he going to mope and tank his own trade value by like playing really poorly and blowing up that team's locker room? Or is he going to kind of recommit lock in and actually give it, you know, the old college try? Because if he does, the Rockets could be pretty good. Like, I, I think, I, I don't think they will be like a bona fide championship contender, but they could very easily just find themselves in that mix with like, you know, Denver, Dallas, Utah, like that, that kind of bunched up middle class in the Western conference where you're going to be like a frisky playoff opponent um, without necessarily being like a legitimate threat to like the Clippers or Lakers. But obviously, you know, his situation has implications that go beyond just what happens to the Rockets, right? Because whatever team he ultimately gets traded to is very likely going to join the contender class. Um, So That'll be an interesting situation to monitor, and uh, I think that storyline isn't going away anytime soon.
0: All right, we'll take the break and uh, come back and talk about some breakout and regression candidates.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners?
0: Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone, and in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, let's talk players due for breakouts and those due for regressions.
1: My first breakout candidate is Derek White of the San Antonio Spurs, a player that I've been fond of pretty much since he entered the league. I was really impressed by what he did in the bubble. And I think, you know, all of the Spurs young players kind of popped in the bubble. And I feel like maybe a lot of that had to do with the fact that LaMarcus Aldridge wasn't there. They were playing smaller. The floor was just like a little bit more open for all of them. And I don't know how that's going to look when Aldridge is back, uh, because I think it's just hard to function with like both Aldridge and DeRozan on the floor that makes the fit tough at both ends but with White I think he's actually really he's like a very good offensive player and he'd never really shown what he showed in the bubble before where he was shooting like over eight threes a game shot those threes at over 39 percent Average 19 points and five assists was playing a lot more in the pick and roll and having the ball in his hands a lot more frequently, but he'd done a lot of that stuff just on kind of like a smaller scale. And I think, you know, we both came into last season expecting him and DeJounte Murray to be the Spurs starting backcourt. And I think we were really excited to see how that backcourt looked, but then because the Spurs were so light on shooting in that starting lineup, they needed to start Bryn Forbes instead. And White and Murray just never really played together. And I think part of that was like some uncertainty about the viability of Derek White's jump shot. And I feel like he's put those concerns to rest. Like even if you take last season as a whole, not just the bubble, he shot 38% on above the break threes. He was actually a little better above the break than from the corners, which is interesting and rare. With Bryn Forbes now gone, I fully expect White and Murray to be the starting backcourt. And I think obviously DeRozan's still there and he's going to soak up a lot of possessions Aldridge is going to soak up a lot of possessions though. I do think it was helpful that he started of migrated out to the three point arc last season and was playing a little bit less out of the post serving more as a floor spacer than a floor clutter. Um, but I just think like some really encouraging numbers for white offensively, he was 86 percentile in scoring efficiency as a pick and roll ball handler. Um, he shot 46% from mid range, which was 87th percentile for his position. And you tack on all, all that on to the fact that he's like a really good defender who can guard pretty much anywhere from the one to the three. And I just think that he is a, a really impactful player who is going to get more opportunity this season to demonstrate how impactful he can be. So I think if he can kind of just scale that production up over the course of a season, then he is, uh, he's really going to pop and be in the most improved player conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think he was a guy that we both thought would be in the most improved player conversation last year, and for a lot of the same reasons, I believed in him going into last year, and for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, I, I mean, I, I, I take no issue with that with that breakout candidate. The only thing, and I guess it's not really a fair statement because you know your team can suck and you can be a breakout player and and be in the most improved player conversation, but I do wonder if um, if maybe the struggles that. I, foresee the Spurs encountering this season will not necessarily hold Derek White back, but will hold the NBA viewing community at large from really appreciating the steps he might take. I don't know. I mean, I guess there is like a ceiling there where maybe the Spurs find their way into playoff contention again, but I I think it would take a lot going right and a lot going bad for the teams above them for them to be in that race. and. Yeah, that, that's the only thing I could see is that maybe, maybe he has the season you envisioned for him and he almost doesn't get the credit or not enough people realize it because the Spurs are going to be as irrelevant as they've been in like a quarter century.
1: Yeah, I, I part of this is baking in my expectation that at least one of DeRozan or Aldridge will get traded this year. And I think that will thrust him into more of a primary offensive role, especially if it's DeRozan, right? Because then I think White becomes actually like their best on-ball playmaker. And yeah, I think if that happens, his numbers could actually balloon to the point that he gets that kind of recognition, Um, you know, along with the two-way impact. And I really want to highlight the defense because um, according to cleaning the glass, he has been 93rd percentile two years in a row at, in, in terms of his impact on opponent attempts at the rim. And you normally think of that number, you know, in relation to big men, being, you know, deterrent of opposing shots at the rim, but I think Derek White's perimeter defense is such that he really does have that kind of an impact on opposing teams' ability to get dribble penetration, so that he's actually able to affect their shot profile from the perimeter, you know, to the same extent that a lot of big men are by by forcing them away from the middle of the floor. So. Um, he'll definitely be, be a guy that I'm watching and one that I expect to take another step forward this year.
0: Stan Van Gundy recently spoke uh, during Pelicans Media Week about how, um, in terms of defense, and it's obviously not rocket science. We all know this, but you know you want to prevent the the shots that the offense wants, right? And, and those are the most efficient ones, the ones at the rim, the ones in the corners, <clears throat> and free throws. And he just made the very simple statement that like if you really break it down and think about it, all of that or most of that usually comes from an offensive player being able to penetrate, being able to get into the teeth of the defense. And so the white conversation is interesting because it's a good reminder that like, yes, protecting the rim and like big man in the paint, obviously important to your defense and like having that anchor, but especially in today's game, you absolutely need a capable perimeter defender at the point of attack. If you cannot stop penetration, it almost doesn't matter who you got behind, you know, unless you've got like the truly transcendent defensive anchors back there, it almost doesn't matter. And so like having a guy like Derek White at the point of attack, preventing the penetration and preventing guys from getting to the rim, as you mentioned, and getting those attempts there, that by extension helps bring down the amount of not just layups and dunks, but free throws, corner threes and, and open shots. So I think that's an important point. Um, Speaking of guys preventing penetration and, and, you know, just being defensive stalwarts in general, my first breakout guy has to be OG Ananobi. And it's not like a Raptors, Toronto, Homer thing. It's just, if you watch this guy in the bubble, but also just throughout last season, I don't know how you come up with breakout players for this season and don't include him on that list. He is already in the conversation for being the best on-ball defender, perimeter, wing defender in the NBA. He's that good.
1: I, I don't think it's a conversation.
0: You just think he is, flat out. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, he is that good defensively. If if perimeter and wing players got the uh, the recognition that they deserve, maybe, I think he'd be in the conversation for, like, defensive player of the year. Like, that is how good of a defender he is. And in the bubble, he started showing a different side to his offensive game he's you know basically since his rookie year he's been able to hit threes he's been a catch and shoot guy he's been good from the corners Um, he's had a little maybe more offensive pop than most people thought he would coming into the league but he's never been the kind of guy that's going to create for himself or even necessarily create for others and he's obviously not fully there yet i'm not saying he's like a dependable go-to option or a shot creator that can maybe break down a defense or get you a shot when you need one in crunch time but he took a number of steps closer to that destination down the stretch of the season and in the bubble especially uh, than I thought he was ready for. And, And there were times down the stretch and in the playoffs where he did actually have to create something for himself out of nothing and was able to do it. And if he just continues to improve like those areas of his game, you know, even if it's incremental improvements with shot creation and on the offensive end, when you combine that with just where he already is defensively, like that is...
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my only argument against him being a breakout guy is he's already starting from such a high baseline. You know, like that breakout to me, if it's going to happen, like it would have to be an offensive breakout because the defense is already at such a high level. And I, I can see it. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know what that breakout looks like. I do think obviously, you know, him showing a bit more wiggle, you know, with his dribble drive game, shooting a little bit more off of the dribble, shooting more off of movement. Like he's proven to be a really effective standstill shooter, but you know, the Raptors haven't really explored using him kind of like coming off of handoffs or pin downs or anything like that. Like it's, it's a lot of stationary catch and shoot stuff. So maybe more of that. Obviously, you know, his, his ability to attack closeouts is well documented. He's got a lot of north-south explosiveness, but he started to show a bit more side-to-side activity last year with the ball in his hands. And I think the, the important point for him this season is, like, the Raptors lost both of their centers. And I think Aaron Baines and Alex Lam, like, those are serviceable replacements, but it's obviously a step down. And I think that will result in OG playing more at the five. And I think his viability as a small ball five is going to go a long way toward determining whether the Raptors can kind of survive the losses of Gasol and Ibaka. And it's going to change his role a little bit because he's, like you said, been uh, an exceptional on ball defender, but without those two, you know, really strong rim protectors behind him, he's going to be relied upon more as a help defender and as a rim protector. And he's going to be matching up against opposing bigs more often, which is going to give him, uh, you know, more and better opportunities to stretch the floor uh, and also to take guys off of the bounce, right? Like he'll be, if he's seeing opposing bigs, then it's going to be incumbent on him, I think, to use his speed to burn those guys, or at least use his three point shooting ability to pull them away from the rim. So I think a lot is going to be asked of him. The Raptors half court offense was, you know, middle of the pack last year and that's why ultimately they couldn't get past the Celtics in the second round. So if that's going to improve, they're going to need Ananobi I think to be a more consistent scorer and uh, like a tertiary creator for them. And I do think he's capable of doing that. So, you know, to me that's that's where his breakout is going to have to come. It's going to have to come at the offensive end.
0: Who you got next?
1: I have Wendell Carter. Nice. Freed from the shackles of (laughs) of clock punching
0: Jim Boylan.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so it's that, right. But he's also, he's got to stay on the floor, right? Like that's the first and most important thing. Um, He's already missed 60 games across his first two seasons due to a variety of injuries. Um, And another aspect of staying on the floor is just avoiding foul trouble. And he's still pretty foul prone. Um, So that's, that's where it starts but for one thing I think he has a chance to be a real impact defender uh, because while he may seem undersized from a height perspective for the center position like he's only six nine he's got a seven4 wingspan a nine foot one standing reach it's he kind of gets the best of both worlds right because he has the length to be a legit rim protector but he is still kind of he, he's not this lumbering big who can't move around right he's switchable he's mobile. Uh, And I I think he has a chance to be like an exceptional defender. I think offensively is where the growth is going to have to come because he just like so often got phased out of the bulls offense last year was super passive. Uh, His usage rate was 16.4%. And that, that offense just really didn't make any use of his passing ability. They didn't explore his shooting range at all. He was used pretty sparingly in the pick and roll. Like, this is a guy who got Al Horford comps coming out of college and he's mostly been used as like an unskilled big, just kind of hanging out in the dunker spot. So part of that's on him. I think he needs to be like more assertive, but I do think, you know, he has a real opportunity to become more of a focal point of that offense under Billy Donovan. And I think he has a chance to just straight up be the best player on the bulls. Like it's not the highest of bars. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you agree with that? Or
0: I, I love I love his potential. I have this, some of the same concerns you have. And I still, I think my biggest thing is like, I I need to see like how it works with him and Markkanen together with both of them yeah. logging heavy minutes. Because that was another thing too. Like Larry Markkanen weirdly, f- maybe not fell out of favor with Boylan, but just like all of a sudden didn't really seem like a, a priority, which was weird. Because he might be their best offensive player, to be honest. For me, I want to see what it looks like and how viable it is. If you do have, say, Carter at the five and Markkanen at the four, like, can you survive like that? Um, and I'm not saying survive like you know if you want to be a contender, but can you survive like that if if right now your first goal is just getting into that like seven to ten play in range and 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 having a season where even from st- from start to finish you're competing for something?
1: Um, that, I just don't think Markinen's very good. Really, eh? Like I think it's very tantalizing because here he is the seven footer who, like his mechanics look great. Like he, in theory, like I have it in my head that like Lowry Markin is like a forty percent three point shooter, but he's he's not. not. He's like (laughs) a thirty five percent three point shooter. The idea of him is so much sexier than the reality. And outside of the three point shooting, like yeah, he can attack a closeout. Like he can put the ball on the floor and like do some stuff in the post, but. I don't think there's a whole lot else there, you know, as far as his offensive game goes, like he's not much of a playmaker. And so it's like, okay, if he's not going to be a 40% three point shooter, then is he act- actually like a super effective offensive player? He's also still and very young. though. Like he is, he is. But, but the bigger concern to me is like, I, I just don't think he has a defensive position. Right. And so, yeah, you, you put all that together and I just don't think you have a particularly productive player and maybe he will, like you said, he's super young, so maybe he'll grow to the point that he'll prove me wrong. But I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really see it with him. I think Carter should be the priority. I think the upside there is way higher.
0: He's the more complete basketball player for sure. Yeah. Uh, and as the more complete skill set. I think one of the issues with Chicago in general and it's weird to say because they're not good, they almost have too many of these like young project type guys that they need to devote time to and have like uh, a tantalizing upside but there's just not enough like there's not enough ball and or time to go around to develop them all properly. And maximize their potential, but I do think in that sense, you know, as much as I was joking around about Boylan, I do think going from Boylan to Billy Donovan, who at least I think will get things organized, I do think will help a guy like Carter and all their young guys. Um, uh, my, who's your next guy? My second guy. It's, it's kind of a cop out because we were talking about this off air. Like he, I think you can make the argument he broke out in the bubble, and it's Michael Porter Jr. The Nuggets remain like one notch below true contender status. If Jamal Murray is anything close to what he was in the bubble and Nikola Jokic is just Nikola Jokic, they really do just need one more guy to pop. And Porter has the talent to do it. Like, we're not talking about like, okay, well, if he adds this to his... Like, no, offensively, like, he's got the talent to do it. And if he's kind of like your third option, if he is kind of like your release valve when Jamal Murray gets trapped or, I don't know, when one of those guys is off the court... Like, I think he is very capable of filling that role basically immediately. The issue is, and, you know, we saw it in the Utah series early in the series, is that it's not just about – him. like, he's not just a bad defender. He's an extremely inattentive defender and a lazy defender. And that – maybe that's okay, like, the first few weeks you've ever broken out in the bubble, in the restart – but if if you're going to take this next step, if you really are going to be like potentially the third guy on a team that has title aspirations, those lapses need to be few and far between. So I do think he's a breakout candidate, but I think, and we did see a little bit of it as the playoffs went on. He was a lot more focused on that end. He's going to have to learn how to like, I don't know if it's a matter of just pacing himself or just straight up being more focused, but he's going to have to learn how to dial in at least defensively. You know, because it's one thing to maybe not be the quickest guy laterally, to not be the most mobile guy. Like there, there are physical reasons why some guys aren't great defenders. It's not just all about effort, as you know, coaches will tell you, but there is something to be said for just like focusing and being smarter and preparing better on that end. And um, I would hope that, you know, the taste of what he got in the bubble has prepared him to do that. And I think if he does that, I think, yeah, I think this is like a, a no-brainer breakout candidate on a team that is, you know, one piece away from really being there.
1: Well, they're really going to need him to be because Jeremy Grant is yeah. gone. So basically, Porter Jr.'s only competition at the four is like a 48-year-old Paul Millsap. And oh, actually, they got, they sorry, they signed Jermichael Green. So I'll walk that back. Uh, He's like like Jeremy
0: Grant's light, but on a better bargain.
1: Yeah, no, I I actually thought that was a great signing for them. Um, So yeah, I guess there'll be some competition uh, at that position. Look, I I think Porter Jr.'s offensive potential is sky high. I mean, a guy that size who can shoot the way that he can shoot, who can handle the ball. uh, He's like a sneaky, really good offensive rebounder. And yeah, I think he has the potential to really meaningfully raise their ceiling. Obviously it's at the defensive end where he's going to have to show enough that he can just stay on the floor for enough time that like his offensive game can actually really flourish. Um, but if we, you know, if he defends the way that we saw him defending in the bubble, then that's going to be really difficult. And I do think as the playoffs went along, he got better uh, especially in terms of just like team defense. Like he looked completely lost a lot of the time, but I think as the playoffs went on, those moments where he looked completely lost were fewer and further between. And there were actually some times where, you know, he made some pretty good help side rotations.
0: Bent his knees. His head was turned the right way.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, we talked about this when, you know, in that Utah series, when they were just going at him every single time and he just wasn't getting into a, into a defensive stance. He was like, so rigid and upright and we wondered whether maybe his back injury was playing into that at all. Uh, and that's just something, yeah, we'll have to see like whether he's healthy, and he can stay healthy and whether his body cooperates to the point that he can actually, you know, routinely, even if he hasn't quite figured out all the nuances of NBA defense and all the moving parts that go into that, if he can just give like consistent effort on that end of the floor and like just be in a defensive stance Uh, then that would be a big help and a good place to start. Who do you got next? The next guy is like a little bit off the board. Um, It's Kevin Porter Jr. on the Cavs. Um, And part of this is like, you know, coming into every season, I like to find at least one reason to watch every team. And so I think for the Cavs, Porter Jr. is that guy. Colin Sexton had a great end to last season. He had a very good scoring season. Sneaky efficient scoring season, shot the ball really well. Not a very good playmaker, not a good defender. And obviously right now, I think Colin Sexton is a much better player than Kevin Porter Jr. But the prospect that I'm more excited about long-term, I think, is KPJ. And it's kind of a pure eye test and gut feel pick because pretty much all of the numbers you know, whether it's the counting stats, advanced stats, impact stats, they were all pretty bad in his rookie season. (laughs) Like the Cavs were absolutely abysmal with him on the floor. So I'm reaching a little bit, but just from, you know, the eyeball test, he has a wicked handle. He has some real nice change of pace to his game. He's an explosive athlete, has really good size for his position is dynamic in the open floor. And I thought he really improved as last season went along. And the big thing is just like, he's really good at creating separation, like whether it's hesitation dribbles or step backs. Um, And and this is the thing, like he took a lot of his shots off the dribble last year. He was really good at shooting off of the catch. 41% on catch and shoot threes and 44% from the corners. But He shot most of his shots off the dribble, unfortunately, and was really bad at them. Shot 28% on pull-ups. But I just think, like, given how good he is at shaking defenders and creating space, I I feel weirdly confident that eventually more of those self-created looks are going to start to go down. And on top of that, he gets to the rim a lot and is a very crafty finisher. Uh, He shot 66% in the restricted area as a rookie, which is really good for a a wing. Um, And so you look at it and it's like, despite the fact that he shot 31% from mid-range, he still shot over 50% from two-point range on the whole because of how good he was at getting to the rim and finishing at the rim. So I, I like all of the kind of softer skills In his game, uh, he has a lot to figure out just in terms of fundamentals, in terms of his shot selection. He's still not much of a playmaker, which apparently is just a prerequisite for being a Cavs perimeter player. Um, But I think there's a chance that he could really pop this season.
0: Kudos to you for trying to find a reason to watch the Cavs. I will will watch them, you know, because it is our job. I will, but uh, I definitely won't. I can't lie to myself and say I have a reason to watch them. So.
1: kudos now I've just given you one, man.
0: Yeah, kudos to you for finding one. Um, all right, I won't add too much about KPJ. Um, but I'll say my last breakout guy. But it's I mean it's definitely not off the board. Uh and it's Markel Fultz, who you wrote about last season. I feel like the discourse with him because of what he was supposed to be and what he's very clearly not, has left people very sour on on him and maybe his upside and his long-term projections. And I think if you can approach assessing Markel Fultz, just by based, like, what he is right now and what he could be, as opposed to the number one pick and all the shenanigans that happened after with him forgetting how to shoot, like, all of that. Just look at what who he is as a player right now or who he was last year and what he could be. I think there are reasons to believe he can't break out. Like, the guy is still, you know, an excellent ball handler, uh, a really good playmaker, his shot, while still not there, like slowly but surely at least looks a little more functional. And it's something Steve Clifford actually talked about during media week that his his jumper is starting to look closer to what it would not, not from like an effectiveness standpoint, but maybe like from a functionality standpoint and like the mechanics of it are starting to get back to where he was, you know, back in the day. And, uh, and yeah, I just think there is still a skill set within there on a team that, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to handle, like to handle the ball and maybe even run the offense. And even look, like they lost DJ Augustin, which we joked about this on other episodes, where it's like, you know, for most teams, you lose DJ Augustin. It's like, okay, that sucks. He's like a solid, heady point guard, but it doesn't debilitate you. It, In a lot of ways, it's going to debilitate the magic. And if Mark L. Fultz can take advantage of some of the extra possessions and the extra usage and the extra time running an NBA team, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, kind of being a floor general, I still think there is a skill set there that will allow him to have a breakout season. And again, it's not its not a breakout season in terms of what you usually correlate that with a number one pick, but you have to forget that now. You have to just look at what he is um, or what he has been the last year or two and project him forward. And and based on what I still think he can be, I think that would be a breakout, you know, coming from where he's been.
1: So Markel falls on long twos last year, which is basically like between 16 feet And the three-point line, like, you know, obviously like 22, 23 feet. He shot 46%. That's legitimately insane. Yeah. So, you know, there there are definitely signs that the jump shot is coming around. And obviously making that, you know, the the extra few steps behind the three-point line did something to him. You know, whether it was physically or psychologically, because he shot only 26.7% from three on a pretty low volume of attempts it's tough to say like he also shot 73% from the free throw line, which I think is a really encouraging sign. And I don't think that he needs to become much more than just like a league average three point shooter in order to be really effective because he's a great passer. Uh, I think him and Vucevic was top five, uh, like among assist combos in the league last year and like you mentioned with Augustine gone like he's gonna be asked to drive a lot more of their offense and and play in the pick and roll I think a lot more uh, a lot more often and he's also like one of the better open floor players in the league like he is very difficult to stop in transition um has great body control is super athletic a great finisher at the rim and I like him as a defender too just because of his length uh he you know, is not always the best off ball defender, but on ball, I think I, I really like what he's capable of. And, um, you know, the, the big thing with the shooting, because I do think it didn't affect him as much on ball, to be honest, because of what I mentioned, you know, the, his ability to to shoot from the mid range and he was good at when he was playing in the pick and roll, either just like getting into that mid range area and getting those jumpers off from around the elbow or just sort of zigzagging his way to the rim when defenders ducked under screens. But it's off the ball where I think the lack of shooting has really not even necessarily hurt him individually as much as it just cripples the magic offense when he's on the floor. Uh, Cause defenses really just ignore him. And he doesn't really move well without the ball. Like he, he just doesn't entirely know what to do with himself when he doesn't have the ball in his hand. So that's, I think a potential big area of improvement for him next season is just, what are you doing when you don't have the ball in your hands? You know, if defenses aren't going to pay attention to you, like can you find a way to leverage that with timely cuts, you know? Um, and just coming to get the ball and gathering a head of steam before revving up into like a pick and roll or a downhill drive. Um, but I, I really like the outline of him as a player. And if that jump shot ever comes around, man, I think he, I think he's going to be really, really good. Uh, you want to get
0: some regression candidates?
1: pains me to say this because I love him dearly but Serge Ibaka and it's more just about who he was last season like he had probably his best offensive season last year and I just think that that's going to be pretty tough for him to repeat he had his highest scoring rate averaging over 20 points per 36 minutes he I think had his best three-point shooting season in terms of both volume and accuracy and I just, here's the thing with Serge. He's a really dependent scorer. And he is no longer going to have the benefit of Kyle Lowry, one of the best pocket passers in the league, spoon feeding him picture perfect pocket passes in the pick and roll and the pick and pop. And I know you know this because you wrote about it last year. By the end of Serge's time in Toronto, that pick and roll with Lowry was clockwork. It was just automatic. Like those guys could run those pick and rolls in their sleep. And Lou Williams is a good pick and roll point guard too. And basically had a similar pick and roll chemistry with Montrez Harrell. But for one thing, I don't think Lou Williams is on the same level as Lowry uh, as a passer. And I just think it might take some time before Lou and Serge get accustomed to the cadence of each other's pick and roll habits. And the thing is, like, (laughs) time is not something the Clippers really have a lot of right now. And so I just wonder how that's going to go. Because for one thing, I don't know if Serge is going to start or come off the bench. Um, But I I think one way or another, he's not going to have the same kind of pick and roll chemistry, whether it's with Lou Williams, whether it's with Kawhi. And I think that might make things tougher for him because he is not a guy who creates his own offense. 84% of of his field goals were assisted last year. Um, So entering a new situation, I I don't know. I, I just don't see him having the same kind of offensive season that he had last year. And defensively, I still think he's pretty good, but he's really not a versatile defender anymore. Like you don't really want him switching out or showing high. Like you're pretty much using him in a drop and he's still pretty good as a rim protector, but probably better in theory than in reality at this point um he he did have uh his best opponent field goal percentage at the rim in five years last season It was at fifty two percent which is really really good but uh his block rate has plummeted in recent years, and his impact stats have been trending the wrong way for a while now so I just think like i I think he'll still be pretty effective, and I don't think the clippers will regret signing him. I think he still fits there probably better than Harold does in a lot of ways but I don't know that he's going to be the same player that he was last season with the Raps.
0: Aside from the fact that, yeah, he no longer has Kyle Lowry spoon-feeding him the most flawless pocket passes in the game, he had a career year, basically, at 31 years old or whatever he is. Like, the definition of regression is what we would expect from Serge Bogdanovich. Unless you think he's going to have another career year this season, he's going to regress because that's the only other option. I'm going to go with Kemba Walker. And it's not so much that I think um, there were signs in his game that that he's slowing down and regressing, but this to me is all about health and uh, the kind of uh, stuff that like makes you nervous. So he's got this left knee issue. I think it's a yeah, left knee issue that bugged him all season last year. He misses 16 games. Then he gets a stem cell injection this off season that will keep him out until at least January. And then... This week, there was this really cryptic Danny Ainge quote where Ainge was asked if there are now long-term concerns about Kemba's knee. And his response was, I think this year will tell us a lot.
1: Not the response you want.
0: Exactly. I think we we both love Kemba. Like everyone loves Kemba. A really fun player to watch. And a very important piece of what made the Celtics so... Um, such a matchup nightmare last year because between him and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, most importantly, obviously, and even Gordon Hayward, they had four, four legitimate shot-creating, like multi-level scorers. And those are the guys that win you playoff series and get you out of jams in the playoffs and in crunch time. And, you know, having two or three of them is nice. Having four of them is, in a a non-super team league, is almost unheard of. So, you know, now losing Hayward and now with like Kemba's knee sounding pretty concerning uh, the Celtics might hit some bumps in the road but yeah i just think if you're looking for a guy who is a regression candidate Kemba's a perennial all-star that's now going to miss you know roughly the first month of the season due to an issue that his gm is saying they're not even sure yet whether it's going to be a long-term concern like if that doesn't spell regression i don't know what does yeah which
1: sucks really sucks because He was playing awesome the first half of the year with the Celtics. Started the All-Star game, I thought, deservedly. And kind of looked like a shell of himself by the end of the year. Uh, Got exposed defensively in the playoffs, which maybe would have been the case regardless. But he clearly wasn't right when he came back from that knee injury. And if that's something that's going to continue and hamper him moving forward, then that's just a massive bummer because he spent so much of his prime toiling away on mediocre to bad Charlotte teams and finally gets a chance to go and play with like a legitimate contender and for his prime to effectively get cut short because of injuries, like, you know, just when he was finally getting to have a chance to be a major contributor to a winning team, um, I, I would just feel for him if, if that actually proves to be the case. So I'm hoping not, but I think it's hard to argue against him regressing this year for all the reasons you mentioned.
0: Who's your last regression candidate?
1: Danilo Gallinari. Oh. Um, I'm sorry Jesus. To, to do your pies on like this, but I just think between his age, uh, how surprisingly good he's been the last couple of years and how surprisingly healthy he was last year. I just, I think it's hard to bank on him being that healthy again. And you know we saw some pretty big regression from him even in the playoffs with the thunder last year like he was pretty rough in that first round series and i just kind of think the the situation in atlanta isn't really that favorable for him because for one thing it sounds like he's going to be coming off the bench at least to start the season we'll see if he works his way into the starting lineup at some point but I don't know, there's this weird positional logjam where he's either going to be backing up John Collins at the four or is going to be bumped down to the three where I think he's really going to struggle. Obviously, you know, offensively, he's capable of playing the three because he can create his own shot. He's obviously an excellent shooter and can handle the ball a little bit. But it's not like he's dusting guys off the dribble at this point in his career and trying to defend opposing threes could be a real adventure for him. So I I just don't think that's a situation that's going to be conducive to his skill set at this point in his career. And, you know, you couple that with the fact that uh, he has this long injury history and he's 32. uh, And I think it's fair to expect him to come down from the level he's been at the last two years, which have been uh, arguably the two best years of his career
0: it pains me to say it but i can't really argue that i i don't think it's been surprising how good he's been the last two years to be honest i think it's been surprising how durable he's been given his injury history and yeah i think it's it's fair to assume that probably won't continue my last one is pj tucker pj tucker's 35 years old man and (laughs) like he he the dude's been around you know uh overseas the nba and the miles on that body are like hard hard man basketball hours right like in soccer they call it a heart like the hard man um, and that kind of like stoic ox usually of a defender well these are like hard man minutes on hard man basketball minutes on pj tucker's body like playing as an undersized center banging with dudes like he's a grimy player at some point that was always going to catch up to him but even regardless of all that Something we've talked about off air too, like as the Rockets shift into what is sure to be a rebuild, especially if James Harden's gone, you know, a rebuild and they just, the the functionality and the look of their offense changes and no one is serving him up really tasty open corner threes anymore. It's going to be really hard for PJ Tucker's offensive contributions To keep him valuable at all on that end, honestly, because if you take those kind of open corner threes out, which kudos to him for, you know, developing that jumper over time, but like you take that out of his game and you take those open corner looks out of his game and you take the guy out of the Houston offense that gets him those looks and like you're not really getting a lot from P.J. Tucker on the offensive end and to expect that he will remain this you know absolutely elite defender now in his mid to late 30s he's gonna be 36 in may when the season's still going depending on you know whether he's on the rockets another team whatever but i think he's had a great run i'm not saying he's gonna be washed by the end of this season but i think expecting him to be this um you know elite defender and, and, and in a lot of ways almost solid two-way player like for a championship contender i think those days might be done
1: yeah a couple things uh you mentioned his age which Yeah, you know, going into his age 36 season and being asked to carry the defensive load that he's had to carry the last few years, uh, it just feels like it's bound to catch up with him at some point, even though he's got that just incredibly sturdy base that seems like it could, you know, take a pounding for years and years. Like, eventually it's going to catch up to him. And I do think, you know, a big part of his value the last few years is just his versatility as a defender. And while I still think he has that, I think he's become much more of just kind of a, I don't know if traditional is the white, the right word, but just like a big man defender more so than a guy who can like toggle between defending bigs and also defend on the perimeter. I think he's shown some slippage defending on the perimeter and has given up a lot more blow buys in the last couple of years than he had previously. So I think we might continue to see more slippage in that regard and a little bit less defensive versatility from him. And I also just think, look, you, you just hit on this, but basically I think PJ Tucker could be the exact same player he was last year. But if he's not on a team with James Harden, even if James Harden is there, like the way that the Rockets roster context has changed To me, makes Tucker less valuable because, like he made that team work right in in its iteration last year, and and in the way that they've decided they want to play for the last few years, like a guy who can play virtually any defensive position and not need to have an offensive position because his offensive position is you stand in the corner and you shoot corner threes at an extremely high rate. I think he might've hit more corner threes than any player in the league last year. And he did it at over 40%. So a lot of that, like you said, has to do with James Harden spoon feeding him those looks. And a lot of it just has to do with the fact that, you know, no matter who he was on the floor with, that was always what he was going to do. But if Harden isn't there, or if, you know, they're playing with more traditional big men on the floor and they can no longer like Christian Wood's going to be there. And I don't think, I I, I sort of think that makes it harder for them to play a switching system, which to me, again, eats into Tucker's value a little bit because so much of what has made him valuable is just his ability to be the anchor of a switching defense as a a guy who can switch one through five. But if they're playing with a non-switching big like Christian Wood or DeMarcus Cousins, then that makes things a little bit more difficult. And I don't know where Tucker fits into a roster like that. So I do think, you know, even if he's the same player that he was last year, that he won't quite have the same value, uh, because what he brought to last year's Rockets team and team and to, you know, previous Rockets teams, uh, it was just like impossible to quantify. So, um, I definitely agree with that pick.
0: All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of this marathon podcast session, almost at an hour and a half. We, we, unless you have anything else to add,
1: (laughs) I don't think I do. Yeah.
0: We will be back next week with our full-on season preview. Make our prediction and uh, you know, go down the teams we think will be playoff teams and which teams will be contending for a title. We'll make our awards picks. We'll do all that next week. And who knows if there's a big trade in the meantime, if Giannis makes a decision on the Supermax, uh, we might have a couple episodes for you next week. A fan shout-out this week is Johnners. goes by at Johnny Likes with like three Y's, I think, and two N's on on Twitter. His Twitter bio says he's in Los Angeles. So I guess Johnner's at Johnny Likes listening from Los Angeles. He's the fan shout out this week because he actually uh, wrote in to say that he's been listening for almost two years and he specifically asked on Twitter that Wolfon bring the what up back to, to, uh, to our intro. So the people have spoken and by the people, I mean at least one person. Joe wolf on, so. the person have spoken yeah that's our fan shout out for the week I already got a couple more lined up for the next couple of shows so thanks again to all of our listeners and supporters and a reminder that wherever you're listening from reach out on social media give us some feedback let us know what you like what you don't like let us know where you're listening from and we will try to get you a shout out on a future show with that for joe wolf on, i'm joseph kasharro pound the rock